If you would, uh, please turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's right in the middle of the Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting with verse 11 this morning. It's on page 523 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. When it's, uh, I'm dropping batteries up here. When it's, when it's cold like this, you know the AC's not, uh, HVAC, the heat's not working. Um, I'm tempted to just preach on the, like, the persecuted church and how they, you know, in the cold, uh, in the threat of death, they gather anyway, you know. But we're actually in Ecclesiastes, so it's pretty close, right? Um, I, uh, the HVAC guy showed up at 7 today, and he's a believer, great guy, uh, but he was like, man, you know, uh, so sorry. I'm like, eh, it is what it is, and he was like, that's a pretty good response, and I'm like, look, I'm preaching Ecclesiastes right now. I got to preach Ecclesiastes this morning. If I just like let out my frustrations that I'm feeling and complain, like I would be a total hypocrite to stand in the pulpit, so anyway... I tried to hold those in, reminding myself we live in this world where there's frustrations, and if they go unchecked, it leads to anger, right? All right, here we are. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 11, we're going to go all the way through chapter 10, verse 20. And so I'm going to ask again, I'm sorry, that you would stand with me as we read God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting with verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not swift to the, not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like the birds caught in a snare, so the children of man are, uh, are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king king came against it and besieged it, building a great siege work against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor, wise man. But I say, that wisdom is better than might, though the poor wise man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard and quiet, are better than the shouts of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfume's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense to, the, to, to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The, wisdom, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of it, his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what it will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, 
for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. This morning, I'm going to group all of these Proverbs together, having to do with the topic of folly, foolishness versus wisdom. And I, I want to understand who these wise people are, but spend most of our time looking at the, a profile of the fool. And we're going to title this sermon, Nobility in a Fool's World. Nobility in a Fool's World. Let's pray together and ask God for His help. Father, we do ask that you would help us. Help me to speak now your truths, not merely my own ideas. Open our hearts to shape us and to fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. If in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Ray Ortland writes of a time many years ago when he was a model taking photos at a particular place, and there was a female that was being photographed uh, just prior to him, and he watched as the photographer took advantage of the female. And he didn't say anything. He didn't stand in the way. He didn't stop it because he was too embarrassed to speak. But he felt terrible after the fact. And that guilt hung over his head. And he committed himself from that point on to always act with integrity. To always act, he uses the word, with nobility. Integrity in action. To never again see something happen that is wrong. And to not step in, even if it is unpopular. We live as Christians as nobility in a fool's world. There's foolishness at every corner, foolishness at every opportunity, in private and in public, and we are called to live as nobility in this world of folly. I'm grabbing the word nobility from chapter 10, verse 17, where the author says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Happy are you, O world. Happy are you, O land. When your king, the one who rules you, is the son of nobility. No, noble or nobility could be defined as a state which one possesses and displays high qualities of integrity and personal character and morality and worth and just action. Often, nobility is referring to royalty, but not just any king. A noble king is not just any king. It's referring to one who rules with dignity. One who would be willing to risk his or her life for the good of another. One who rules with integrity in the face of society's toxic current. Now, for our purposes, I'll define nobility as one who is born spiritual royalty. One born of noble birth. Not necessarily one born of noble birth according to this world. As Paul says, he chose the weak to confound the, strength, uh, the strong, to, to put to shame the strong. He chose the, the, the uh, weak things of this world to shame the wise. No, one born of spiritual nobility. You see, humans 
were created as kings of this world. God gave humans a job to rule and reign in this world, to steward the earth under His rule as the great king. But quickly in the story, folly enters, doesn't it? As the first king, Adam, rejects the rule of the great king and rebels against him and takes the fruit and the world spins into foolishness. Yet Christ is remaking all things. I'm going to jump forward here in my sermon, but Christ comes. He dies for us. He is remaking a people where Adam fell, Christ stands. In Adam all die, but in Christ all, somebody finish it for me, are made alive. Amen? Brought into this great prince, into this, the life of this great king, and are then recreated as true nobility, as kings, queens, as royalty in this earth. That's what we are as Christians. Vice regents with God, reigning with Him in His kingdom. Which is, which is not yet physical, we don't see it now, but it's spiritually realized, and it one day is to come physically. In Ecclesiastes, the author shows us life as it really is. We've been talking about this. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this is not a new theme for you. But we see life as it is, meaning we would, we would prefer to see a rosy view of humanity. But the author of Ecclesiastes just like smacks us in the face with reality. And he shows us that there are two dimensions to the world that we live in. There is this horizontal dimension, which would be the things that we can see, touch, and feel, the things of this world. That is the dimension which the author of Ecclesiastes calls under the sun. But there's another dimension, what he sees above the sun. That would be what we could call the vertical dimension. Our relationship not with the physical world that we can see, touch, and feel, but our relationship with God. Christians live in the horizontal and the vertical. The author of Ecclesiastes, he calls himself the preacher, he's been going on this journey to ask this question and to discover the answer. Can I find meaning and satisfaction in only the horizontal? With no vertical. Let's take God out of the question. If all there is is the things that you can see, touch, feel, acquire, Money, bread, wine. If that's all there is, can I find some kind of ultimate meaning in this? Can I find some ultimate satisfaction in this? And, and Ecclesiastes has been kind of progressive. It starts by him just saying, no, 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 no. He's explored these things. Can I find it in pleasure? Can I find it in power? Can I find it in success? No, no, no. And then he starts getting into the, to the ugly. He starts showing not only that we can't find satisfaction in this, but then he says, let me tell you how the world actually is. It's extremely disappointing. It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely foolish. In chapter 11 and chapter 12, we're, we're nearing the end of Ecclesiastes. In those two chapters, in his conclusion, he calls us to make a decision. Are we going to live as the wise or are we going to live as the fool? Are we going to live as one just trying to find a fulfillment in the horizontal? Or are we going to live as one trusting God and fearing God, understanding this vertical dimension and how it changes everything in the horizontal? But before we get to 11 and 12, it's almost as if this is what I think he's doing. In chapter 9 and chapter 10, he's saying, let me first take you down the road of the fool. Let me paint a full picture of, of where this road takes you, the life of the fool, the portrait of the fool, the profile of the fool, and then I'm going to ask you to make a decision. And so today what we're doing is we're going to look at the profile of a fool. But we're not going to just stop there. We're going to turn it toward our application as nobility in this world. Are you with me so far? 
So in chapter 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 11, he's showing us the world as it is. You see that word, under the sun? And he's going to show us how frustrating things are here. He says the fastest under the sun don't always win the race. The strongest don't always win the battle. The wise don't always get the bread. The smartest don't always get the money. The knowledgeable aren't always the most popular. What's he saying? Well, this is a simple way of him saying that everything is inverted. And the wise are not always seen as wise. The greats don't always win the fight. A simple illustration of this is that last week, in the AFC Championship, the greatest team did not win. Amen? Why? Why? He tells us why. He says time and chance. Just because you're the greatest, just because you're the strongest, just just because you were the smartest in school doesn't mean you're going to go the furthest. What is it that determines the outcome? Well, under the sun with no, you know, he's talking as if there is no God. He's not talking about God's sovereignty at this point. He's not talking about God's providence. He's just saying under the sun, what is it? It's time and chance. Meaning you can't tell what's going to happen. You think you know. You think you know the future. You don't know. Time and chance, he says, happen to them all. Meaning the, the truly noble in the world don't always feel like they are recognized as the noble. In verse 11, he, he goes on to explain that this, uh, or verse 12 rather, this upside down world is because, he says, fish get caught in the net. Birds get caught in a snare and humans get caught by life. That's another way of saying life happens. Life happens. An example of this is in verse 13 through 16. He says he sees this little city and there's a powerful great enemy that comes against the city and besieges the city. And then he sees this wise man who through his wisdom delivers the city. Some commentators explain that that could be translated uh, that that he could have delivered the city. It's as if what he's saying is, is the city was besieged. It was taken. And there was a wise man there who had the power to deliver the city in his wisdom. However, he was poor. And because of his poverty, he wasn't listened to. He wasn't heard. He wasn't remembered. What he's saying is frustrating to us. Verse 16, wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Why? Why is it that he's not remembered by history? Why is it that, uh, that he, he wasn't remembered in the, the, the siege? Why is it that his voice was not heard? It's not because he wasn't wise. It's because the wise are not always the herd. That's what he's saying. They don't always get the attention. They don't get the ear. Why? Because he's poor. He's saying we live in a superficial world. What could a poor man teach us? Do you know that all of the modern presidents for like the last hundred years have been over six foot? It's because we live in a superficial world. And we think height is better than wisdom. The average CEO is six foot, two and a half inches taller than the average man. Isn't that interesting? I just find that, I find little stuff like that really interesting. Because you know there's some little dudes out there that are far smarter than the last number of presidents that we've had. I'm just saying. Just being honest. Why? It's because we're superficial. It's because we don't want to listen to the wise because he's poor. You see the frustration for the noble? You see the frustration for the person who's actually wise, but they're not heard of for superficial reasons? It's because we live, saints, in a fool's world. So, let's talk about it. True nobility in a fool's world. First, I want to walk through these uh, proverbs. These are proverbs. I want to walk through these and string them together as I believe the author intends 
to create a profile of the fool. First, fools are destructive. Fools are destructive. In chapter 9, verse 17 through 18, we see that they destroy really everything. In verse 17, he says a shouting leader, is, is, his shouts are pointless when he's shouting at fools because they're not going to hear him. In verse 18, he says that one sinner does much good. Wisdom is better than weapons, he says, but one sinner does much, not good, does much damage, rather. You know, all it takes is one fool pushing that button. You know what button I'm talking about? Nuclear war. One fool does much damage. Chapter 10, verse 1. The next proverb, he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom. What he's saying here is that the smallest bit of foolishness makes something very beautiful and expensive worthless. It destroys what is honorable. The next one, chapter 10, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. The right here, right is an old ancient symbol of strength. So he's saying the wise man's heart inclines him to strength, however, a fool's heart to the left. Meaning the fool is destructive through choosing frailty. Through choosing weakness. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And everyone says he's a fool. What he's saying is, is that the fool is exposed in their folly. Over time, it is clear to see the fool. They make themselves known. You know, a good friend of mine about a year ago had, was a man in his 50s, very successful. He had started a number of humanitarian organizations. He had start, helped to start churches. He was the CEO of a fairly large organization. Yet he had unchecked folly in his life. He chose weakness over strength. And that led him into an extramarital affair in which his folly was exposed for all to see. And a, one, you know, a couple dead flies makes the whole thing stench. Gives the whole thing a stench. His, his whole life is ruined. His, his organization's his leadership was lost. His, the, the, uh, many people have followed him, hurt by this. Like, when f the, the fool will be exposed, and when the fool is exposed, what he's saying is, is in, the, in his wake is destruction. But someone might come along and say, well, look at all the good. Let's just ignore the dead flies. You know, that's like me handing you a, a, a nice glass of water when you're thirsty, and I say, you know, my dog peed in that just a little bit, just a couple drops. You know, it's one, one drip, one drop, it, it, it makes the whole thing stink. Number two, fools are failures. So they're destructive, and then he also explains that they're failures in chapter 10, verse 5 through 7. He points out, the frustration that the fool brings to the world. In verses 5 and 6, he shows what it's like when the foolish are in leadership. He says that they set folly in high places and they put the rich in low places. What he's saying is, is those that have the positions to make decisions uh, uh, for, for, for change and for good, they're, they're fools. They, they, they don't have the wherewithal to make the right decision. And those who have the resources to make change aren't given the opportunity to make change, meaning they don't know how to organize things. They don't know how to, how to set up their governments, how to properly uh, get things done putting the wrong people in the wrong positions. Verse 7, he says, I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now I think he's speaking ironically here. And I think the princes that he's referring to would actually be the wise and the slaves would be the fools, those enslaved to their foolishness, yet they're driving in limos. 
And those that are truly wise are carless. They're hacking a ride. He's picturing for us an inverted society that is organized by the fool. He's showing us life as it is, and it's frustrating. The failings continue in verse 8. Next proverb, he says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. These are destructive behaviors. He's referring here to violence. What he's saying is, is that if you live by violence, you will die by violence. If you dig a pit, you'll fall into it. That's a common proverb that you still here today but not just the destructive activities but also the positive things that the fool do end up destroying him look at verse look at verse 9 it says he who quarries stones is hurt by them put stones together as like a, a wall and he, and and he who splits logs is endangered by them meaning whether it's his actions are constructive or whether his actions are malicious the fool fails because of his character As an example of this, a man was con- uh, contacted, by, contacted and contracted by the uh, police department to construct a steel cage detention cell. And so the man spent three days putting together the most beautiful steel cage detention cell that you can imagine. And the police loved it, and they paid him a couple bucks for his work. And he went out with his buddies at 4 p.m. on a Thursday to celebrate and have a few drinks. And he went home in the wee hours of the morning. And he was picked up by the police. And he was the first to sit in his masterpiece. Meaning the fool, even when he sets himself out to do something constructive, something positive, he still fails. Why? Because of his character. Verse 10 and 11 continues to explain why the fool fails, and it's because of a lack of preparation. Verse 10, it says, if the iron is blunt, the iron here would refer to a sword or a knife. If one does not sharpen the edge, you don't take time to sharpen your knife. Now he's got to use more strength to get the job done. But the wisdom helps but wisdom helps one succeed. It's, this is very simple. He's saying, look, you are shooting yourself in the foot. The wise man took time to prepare and sharpen his knife. You did not want to take that time because preparation is boring. You just wanted to get right at it and start whacking away and hacking at it. And you still can't cut through the thing. The wise man has already sliced through. The lack of preparation. Another Uh, A picture of lack of preparation is in verse 11. He says, since the fool doesn't take time to properly charm the snake. It takes time to charm a snake, evidently. And if you don't take time to charm the snake, you're going to get bit by the snake. And so what's the point of being a charmer if you don't charm the snake? You know, things. these these are illustrations that we're all very familiar with in our modern world, aren't they? But his point is clear. The fool does not want to take time to prepare. I remember many years ago, I warned one of our young preachers who was an intern at the time to prepare for this sermon that he was about to give. And I gave him an extensive preparation guide, which some of you guys are walking through right now. And I was like, it takes a lot of hours to prepare a sermon. And he literally said to me, I think I'm just going to wing it. And when he preached, it felt like he was winging it. You know what I'm saying? Now, I knew that you have to prepare because I once was that fool. I was a youth pastor for five years. (laughs) And we didn't prepare much back then. We were just winging it. And it felt like it. Moving on, number three. Fools are empty talkers. So fools are destructive. Fools are fail their failures number three they are empty talkers they're destructive even with their words in verses 12 through 14 in verse 12 it says that the fool's word words consume him meaning the fool destroys themselves with their own words meaning there are some people who actually would have done pretty well with their life if they never opened their mouth 
Their actions were fine. They kind of, their, their work was okay, but the problem was their words. And we don't realize how destructive our words can be. Verse 13, where do they come from? He says these words grow out of the person's foolishness. He's taking us inside the individual. And he's saying that the words that are spoken are spoken because the person is a fool. And the end of it, the end of the result of these kinds of destructive words, he says, is evil madness, wickedness, immorality, injustice, wrongdoing, harming another individual. Verse 14, where do these words come from? He says, they, they come from arrogance. A, fool's, a fool multiplies words, he says. Meaning a fool speaks a lot. Multiplies the words. Yet, he has no knowledge of what's to come. What he's saying there is that the fool talks a lot, yet he has no clue of what he's talking about. He, he doesn't know the future. He doesn't have any particular skill. He doesn't have any wisdom to have some kind of clear guide as to where we should go as a people or an organization or as a family or as a couple or as an individual. They're not thinking about it because they're not driven by wisdom. They don't know where they're going. They're just talking. That's arrogance combined with ignorance. This is the talk, the speech of the fool, and it is destructive. People are hurt by words. Some of you are hurt by the words of fools. And what makes it worse is that we know that we have hurt others by our own foolish talk. Number four, fools are lazy. Fools are lazy in verses 15 through 19. In verse 15, he ties the ignorance of speech with action. He ties ignorance and laziness together. In verse 15, he says, the, the, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Meaning, in his cluelessness, in his ignorance, not knowing how to get to the city, he's too lazy to find directions. The toil of a fool, it just wearies him. And so he's lost. Verse 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. Man, we're going into politics season here. That might be our theme. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. And a child is uh, to be taken, as you might understand it, immature, childish. And your princes feast in the morning. Feasting there would be a reference to getting drunk. We know that because of the very next verse where he references drunkenness. His nobles, the people that are surrounding this childish king, are just getting drunk in the morning. A sure sign of laziness. You want to know that you're if you're lazy, what do your mornings look like? Escapism? Getting high? Getting drunk? Doing other escapist activities? Or putting your hand to the plow? Now, in contrast to that kind of rule uh, leadership, in verse 17, and here's my theme verse, in verse 17 he says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, look at this, for strength and not for drunkenness. Meaning when they feast, they're, they're going into this feast not just to get tipsy, but they're going into this feast to eat the proper foods that will give them strength for the journey. Verse 18, Though the sloth, uh, th through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Meaning the lazy man doesn't paint his door, and the door wood begins to rot. The lazy man doesn't change his oil, and the engine blows up. The lazy man doesn't fix the leak in the roof. Or doesn't save for a new roof. And the leak comes in and the whole house is destroyed. Meaning laziness leads to collapse. Laziness leads to the collapse of families. Laziness leads to the collapse of organizations. 
Laziness leads to the collapse of governments. If I could summarize all of this, I believe what he's saying is is that laziness, the lack of preparation, delayed maintenance, problems that have gone unchecked, they are destructive. And they destroy nations, businesses, houses, marriages, and our personal lives. And all the fool has then, in verse 19, is bread, wine, and money. Verse 19, as we read it, I I believe we can understand this again to be an under-the-sun kind of reading of this verse, in which he says, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. He's speaking as if the fool, all the fool has is what is under the sun, in the horizontal. He's got money, perhaps. He's He's got bread. He's got wine. But there is nothing above the sun that makes him glad. And the author has already shown us that there is no satisfaction in these things. And so what makes him glad is the kind of gladness that does not fulfill. Living in the horizontal. Verse 20 ends with a word to the wise. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Have you ever heard somebody say, a little birdie told me? That's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, word has a way of getting around. And so don't curse the king in public or even in your private time, don't curse those who have power and resources to hurt you. Because word tends to spread. And a little birdie will tell somebody. Now, he's not saying don't stand up to wickedness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up against an unjust king that was requiring them to do something that was wicked. Daniel stood up against a king that was requiring foolishness. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire where God would deliver them. Daniel was thrown to the lions where God's providence would be all over that and he would be delivered. They stood up bravely with courage to the king. He's not saying don't stand up against foolishness. But he says don't curse the king. We're not to curse others. You see, cursing someone through the Bible, is a, is, it's, a, it's a form of verbal violence. And what he's simply saying is this, don't stoop to the fool to deal with the fool. Don't stoop to their level. Don't fight fire with fire. Don't come at the cursor with curses. Don't come at the violent with violence. He's calling us to something beyond foolishness. What are we called to, saints? Answer, we are called to wisdom. We're called to wisdom. And it's through the text as well. In chapter 9, verse 16, he says, wisdom is better than might. Meaning you think of the strongest fool in the world, if you're wise, you're better. Chapter 9, verse 18, wisdom is better than the weapons of war. Chapter 10, verse 12, the words of the wise win him favor, or another way to understand that is they win him grace. Where does wisdom come from? Well, that's the question. And for that, we must look to the one who was above the sun that came down under the sun so that the fool might be made wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 tells us where wisdom is found and it says this it's because of him and because of him you are in christ jesus somebody say christ jesus christ jesus who is christ it says who who became to us wisdom from god righteousness and sanctification and redemption what he's saying in first corinthians is this is that jesus christ is the wisdom of God, meaning God knows all things, and God is able in His wisdom to orchestrate all things for His ultimate purposes. And so Christ, then, is the only wise one. 
Meaning, as I read this text on fools, what it does is it makes me look to Jesus and love Jesus even more. Amen? What this ought to do is cause us to look to the One who was wholly wise, never had a foolish thought, never had a foolish word, never had a foolish action, never had a foolish moment. Jesus was wise. And not only that, but He became to us, Paul says, wisdom from God. What does he mean? He became our righteousness. He became our sanctification. He became our redemption. Meaning Christ is true nobility in a fool's world. And He came into this world in order to conquer sin, in order to conquer death, which is the curse of sin, in order to conquer the fool. I have to ask this question. Will the fool ultimately prosper? Will the fool win? No. Why? Well, it was a fool that turned Jesus over to the authorities. It was a fool that sentenced Jesus to death. It was a fool that drove the nails into his hands and into his feet. Into his feet. How does Jesus conquer folly? How does he conquer the fool? It's as if he goes into the underbelly of foolishness. He doesn't do it through uh, violence in his lifetime. He doesn't do it through some kind of political change. He doesn't do it through some kind of moral teaching and transformation. He doesn't do it simply through bettering the community. What does he do? He goes to the very heart of sin. He goes to the very heart of, uh, uh, of, of folly. And that is death itself. He goes into death. And there, as he goes into death, he takes the death of the fool, the death of me, the death of you, the death of us, on himself. And he does for us what we could have never dreamed he would do. True nobility dies for the fool. True nobility is seen in the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is put on display through substitutional sacrifice through service of others. That's the wisdom of God. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, the world calls this foolishness. That's the irony here. Because by the time you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say that what is the wisdom of God is seen as folly to the world. Here is the greatest truth of all. This is life. This is wisdom. And the world says, no, you're lying. That sounds like utter foolishness to me. Why would the great, why would the king die for a people that deserve his wrath? That is foolishness. The greatest tragedy Is to, is, is to be confronted with truth and to reject the truth. It's the greatest kind of folly. If I could give you kind of like a somewhat funny example of this. I wish she was here. She's in the nursery. But my daughter Eden, when she was in elementary school, went and told her teacher on April Fool's Day that it was her birthday so that the, the class could sing to her. And the teacher laughed at her and she said, you are not going to get me. And it broke little Eden's heart. Because her birthday is on April Fool's Day. <laughs> it's been said, it is worse than folly not to recognize the truth. Meaning the greatest kind of fool is the person who thinks they're wise. The greatest kind of fool is the person who's confronted in their folly and they call it being smart. They call it being wise. To not recognize the truth in our perceived wisdom. So, two applications I want to close with. Number one, number one, diagnose folly in your own life. Diagnose it. See it. Recognize it. 
diagnose it. If anybody here is trapped in foolishness, as I read, read and explain this, uh, you felt like I was reading a profile of your own life and you're trapped in your sin, I want you to know that that is not who you must be. But Christ has come as good news to the fool. Oh, don't be ashamed. Don't walk out of here in your shame. Walk out of here with Christ. Jesus Christ died for people like you and for people like me. For people who need a Savior. He took the judgment that we deserved after living the righteousness that we could have never lived. And in His death, He gives us His righteousness. That's called substitution. And He takes our judgment for our sin. That is substitution. And then He calls us, and He says, for all who turn from their sins and trust in Him, in His work on the cross, you are forgiven of your sin now. You're forgiven of your folly, and one day you will stand before God, living with Him for all of eternity, apart forever from all folly and sin and brokenness and pain and suffering. But maybe someone says, man, but I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'm still seeing myself in this text. Well, I'm with you. Theologians call this progressive sanctification. Sanctification means we're, we are being made holy. We're becoming more like Jesus. Progressive, meaning it happens over time. Don't confuse that with justification. Our justification is God's declaration that you are the noble, that you are the wise. It is our salvation. God declares us in Christ to be righteous and we are saved the moment we look to Christ. Sanctification is the believer's process in which we become more like Jesus. And it happens progressively over time. As I read and study the profile of the fool, I feel at part, in part convicted uh, with some of these verses as I see myself in there. And so this is the work of the church. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we change? Well, two ways. The external work of the church, number one, meaning we, we are together helping each other see Jesus until the day we see Jesus face to face, using our spiritual gifts, encouraging and strengthening one another, discipleship, sometimes hard conversations with each other. We need people in our lives, and that is the church. We need people in our lives who are willing to say, hey, that was kind of foolish. And you need to be kind, the kind of person that, takes, that, that, that can receive correction because you know that's not who you are. That's not who you are. But it is still this indwelling sin in our flesh that we, that we hate. And so we're, so we're willing to receive others into our lives so that we might become more like Jesus, a.k.a. wise. That's the external work of the church, but there's also the internal work of the Holy Spirit in chapter 9, verse 17. Let me remind you that he says, the wise has a heart which is inclined to strength. What that means is that Jesus remakes our heart, gives us the Holy Spirit, and so we individually have an internal strength to do what's right. To listen to the conviction and the prodding of the Holy Spirit so that we might become wise. But secondly, let me close with, again with chapter 10, verse 17. He says, Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. Live as nobility in a foolish world. So recognize, diagnose the folly that remains within, but secondly, live as nobility in a foolish world. Years ago, I saw the Olympian runner Butch Reynolds, who was from Akron, where I grew up. And I went to this thing, and he was there after, after the Olympics, and he was wearing his gold medal, 
which I don't know why you would do that in public. I was just thinking about that yesterday. That was foolish. But regardless, with that gold medal on, you should have seen the respect. Like, I didn't even know who he was. But I was in awe of him. I was like, this man is like, you know, he's, 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 he's amazing. Like, honorable. Noble. He's like a king. Why? It's because he had a, an actual Olympic gold medal around his neck. Decorated as nobility. You see, in the substitution of Christ, what Jesus does is He takes His gold medal and He places it on us. Jesus, raised from the dead, is coronated as the King and He receives the crown. And in His substitution, He takes the crown and He places it on our head. We become the nobility of Christ. We take on His royalty in this world. Meaning that's who you are, Christian. Oh, saint, none of you in Christ, none of you are mediocre. None of you are dishonorable. None of you are ugly. Therefore, this message simply calls us to be who we are. See the fool, recognize the indwelling folly, but know who you are. You are nobility. You are in Christ. You are royalty. You are remade. Be who you are. Ortland, reflecting on his own testimony, he said this. He says, there's nothing mediocre about Christian conduct. Why? Because there's nothing mediocre about Christ. He is honorable. And He creates honorable, noble, beautiful people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the work of Jesus on our behalf. That He has created us to be honorable and noble and beautiful. I pray, God, that we would see the foolish world in which we live and that we would live as sons of nobility that we would live as nobility in a fool's world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.